Well, along those lines, I want to ask you to remain standing and join me in the book of Romans. No? Nobody? No? Okay. Yeah. I know. It was bad. I know. Romans chapter 15, as we continue our journey through this uh, most exhaustive letter, with all of its sort of acts, you know, one scene to the next, one emphasis to the next, one portion to the next. Here we find ourselves in this closing portion, really the, uh, the end of the, the letter beyond uh, these closing verses in chapter 15. Paul gets into you know, personal greetings and things of that nature, but this really represents the end of the, uh, the letter itself. And so let's read together again this week, verses 22 to 33 and continue our consideration of these verses. Romans 15, verse 22. This is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you. But now, since I no longer have any room for work in these regions, and since I have longed for many years to come to you, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints in Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also be of service to them in material blessings." When therefore I have completed this and I have delivered them, delivered to them what has been collected, I will leave for Spain by way of you. I know that when I come, I will come in the fullness of the blessing of Christ. Some manuscripts read the blessing of the gospel of Christ. I appeal to you, verse 30, brothers, by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit to strive together with me in your prayers to God on my behalf that I may be delivered from the unbelievers in Judea, and that my service for Jerusalem may be acceptable to the saints, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy and be refreshed in your company. May the God of peace be with you all. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Father, we stand uh, holding your scriptures, having uh, enjoyed the sound of one another's voices, extolling your virtues and your goodness, having enjoyed the the sober uh, but joyful participation in the Lord's Supper, reflecting on that great cost that you paid to cover our great sin. Now we turn our attention to your word as we continue to worship you. May we be in awe of what we find here as we seek diligently for you, for your face, and for that which you have to teach us. Make our minds sharp, I pray, and our hearts receptive. And then, Lord, might you strengthen our hands to be obedient. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You may be seated. In this closing section of Romans 15, we are considering three attributes deserving 
of imitation. And so, uh, for a title on your copious notes, uh, Three Attributes Deserving of Imitation, Part 2. Last week, we considered Paul's expressed confidence in God's providence. That's the first attribute found in this section. It is implied. It is not explicitly stated, but rather implicitly observed. And so last week, we examined that in thorough detail to the best of our ability, Paul's confidence in God's providence. Though it should be said, while we considered that in verse 22, where Paul says, this is the reason why I have so often been hindered from coming to you, we can observe a confidence in God's providence all throughout this section, including um, all the way down to verse 32, where he says, so that by God's will I may come to you with joy, always deferring to God's providential oversight of all of his actions. Paul expresses a certain confidence in God's providence. Having established also last week that Christians do not live for ourselves, Uh, but for the good of others and for the glory of God, let us consider now the second attribute deserving of imitation, number two, facilitating the practical work of the church. Number two, facilitating the practical work of the church. Again, let's read beginning in verse 24. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. The first aspect of this practical facilitation of the work of the church is found in this phrase, mission springboard. Okay, that's the best I could do. So mission springboard. Paul's desire is for the church in Rome to be, if you will, a launching point to the westward expansion into Spain. Paul has already stated that he has spread the gospel among non-Jewish people all over, if you will, the, the eastern flank of the Roman Empire, from the heart of Jewish country in Jerusalem to the heart of the Gentile world, which would be considered there as Illyricum, that's in Greece. He has been so busy about planting churches among the Gentiles, fulfilling that, that clearly stated calling from Jesus, that he has not been to Rome, where a church was established, where a church was growing, a church was facing struggles, where a church where all of the Jews were expelled from the city. This is a church that deserved his attention and his care, but he had not yet been And the reason is clear. He's a planter. And his plans to come to Rome were then laid at the feet of God's providence. Now that said, he intends to come to Rome. He believes God will permit him to do so. And when he does, he has several things in mind. Three of them expressed right there in one verse. What's on Paul's mind as he intends to come to Rome? First and foremost church planting in Spain. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain. It couldn't be more clear. Paul has a plan, right? Spain would represent the the wild west, if you will, as far as the gospel is concerned. 
There was as yet at this time no report of Christians who had moved to Spain, no report of Spaniards who were in Jerusalem at the Acts 2 Pentecost inception of the church, who then moved home and started local fellowships. There were reports of that nature in other parts of the Roman Empire, but not in Spain. It was the wild, untamed, if you will, ungospeled West. Now, as we think on this briefly, let us just note simply, Paul's Christianity was practical. Paul's Christianity was practical. There were no churches in Spain. Let's go plant some, (laughs) right? It's not complicated. Here's some people who need Jesus. Why are we sitting here (laughs) in our homes? Let's go. It's practical. I'm grateful. Uh, This week, my my oldest daughter, I'm sorry, Ava, this won't embarrass you. It shouldn't. It won't. My oldest daughter, Ava, got got three little baby chicks uh, from one of our uh, families here at Hillcrest who is adept at at raising chickens and other livestock uh, and all kinds of farm things. the three, little, the three little chicks, you know, were sent home with us uh, for this new exciting adventure that Ava is on. I'm, it's not me. And, uh, and there had been quite a bit of deliberation about what to name these little chickies. Um, and if you have pets at home, you know that naming a pet is a big deal. It's a very... And so there were all kinds of suggestions being thrown out there, everything from like really wonky stuff like, let's, let's, let's call one poop, you know? It's like, no, like, we can do better than that, you know what I mean? Like, and uh, and my, my daughter landed on naming them after three uh, wonderful, godly women missionaries in the history of the church, Lottie Moon, uh, Gladys Aylward, and uh, Elizabeth Elliot. And so it's uh, Gladys, Lizzie, and Lottie. And I'm grateful for that because every time we walk in to the little room where these little chicks are living out their first couple of weeks, um, where I'm, I'm reminded. I'm reminded of the biographies that we've read together as a family of these women's lives, and their, their diligence, their sense of calling and purpose, uh, the joy, the hardships, the struggles, the hunger, the miracles that are recorded in the ministry that these women took to various parts of the world. I'm grateful for then also the legacy that we have as a church family. We, if you will, stand shoulder to shoulder with them as fellow members of the Southern Baptist Convention through whom these women uh, were ministers. It's neat. It's neat to remember that there were and still are people who need Jesus. Paul's ministry was practical. Let's go plant a church there. What's stopping us? It's one of the reasons why I'm so excited about our most recent partnership with uh, the aviation wing of a mission effort to um, expand gospel translations to unreached peoples through a ministry called JARS. Just established this year, and I hope to further cement that partnership with all of you as we venture into the future. Paul's Christianity was practical. We can often over-spiritualize life to the point that we don't do anything. I call it spiritual paralysis. We can over-analyze and wonder and pray and wring our hands over what? 
over oftentimes just whether and how and when to tell our neighbor that Jesus loves them, that he died for them, and that apart from his saving grace, we are all, including them, doomed to an eternity of judgment. Friends, we can over-spiritualize this all day. Or we can just be like Paul and just go. Just go after it. Just get it. There's no reason to hesitate. Don't worry, you can't save their soul anyway. It's above your pay grade. So how about just lay the words out there and trust the Holy Spirit? I love Paul's example here. There's no churches in Spain, let's go plant some. Friends, I know we want to be tactful, sensitive, patient, but at some point we need to adopt Paul's practical Christian ministry and just do it. Secondly, concerning this idea of a mission springboard, Paul's desire is to include the Roman church in the work. His desire is to include them. Look, I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped on my journey there by you. Paul is not a glory hog. Paul isn't asking for his name to be placed on placards on all the church buildings where he has planted Paul asks at one point in 1 Corinthians, who is Paul? Who is Apollos? But servants through whom you believed. Consistent with his self-abasement, Paul seeks to include others in his gospel work. Always training others, commissioning others. Tychicus and Onesimus and Timothy and Titus, the list goes on and on. Among that list of fellow laborers, we can include the church body at Rome. I hope for you to participate in my mission effort. Selfless, God-glorifying gospel ministry includes others, relishes in cooperation, and minimizes self-importance. In contrast, prideful, self-glorifying gospel ministry boasts in one's own accomplishments, minimizes the contributions of others, and attempts to steal God's glory. One well-known pastor recently publicly ran off a list of statistics that presumably spoke to his success over the past four decades. He stated publicly that his church, under his leadership, baptized 56,000 new believers, sent 27,000 members overseas. He himself had trained no less than 1.1 million pastors, a figure he told those in attendance, that's more than all the seminaries put together. Later saying that his church doesn't need the convention, the convention needs him and all the churches allied to him. I'm not gonna mention the gentleman's name because I, I am subject to the authority of our elders. They've asked me not to do so publicly where it's not beneficial or else I would tell you don't read his books. But do hear his words. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. Let us commit to promoting the contributions of others instead of this type of speech. 
It's not godly, it's not helpful, nor encouraging, nor humble. It certainly isn't, as we're examining, worthy of imitation. Right? Thirdly, concerning Rome being a mission springboard for gospel ministry to the West, Paul values their friendship as much as their assistance. Paul values their friendship as much as their assistance. I hope to see you in passing as I go to Spain and to be helped by you once I have enjoyed your company for a while. Paul values their friendship as much as their assistance. Too often, ambitious gospel ministers treat people like pawns to accomplish their goals instead of like the precious flock for whom Jesus died and they are called to protect, serve, teach, and love. Not Paul. He values people and he doesn't just value them as image-bearing fellow humans. That would be enough. He doesn't just value them as brothers and sisters in the Lord. That would also be enough. It's all true. But what he values is their comfort, their fellowship, their encouragement, their particular gifts, their calling unto the Lord, and more. I want us to see, friends, the worth Paul places on everyday saints in the local church is worthy of imitation. Paul writes to the Corinthians, therefore we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoice still the more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. When I read things like that, friends, I can't help but have my mind uh, transported like Avengers Endgame and I'm, I'm going back in time and I'm sitting, if you will, with Paul and Titus and others in a room in a church family. I'm, I'm looking at their faces as they laugh and tell stories. Right? It reminds me of the moments that we have as a church family around the dinner table on Wednesday nights or at men's and women's events or various times watching the kids play football and just laughing and smiling together on the patio outside. There's a particular comfort, encouragement that comes from the fellowship of the saints. I heard a story of a pastor taking a trip to Israel. In the car on his way from the airport, he noticed a shepherd frantically nudging and driving a flock of sheep from behind them. He said to his guide and friend, I've never seen a shepherd drive a flock like that. I've always seen them out in front of the sheep with them following. And his friend replied, oh, that's no shepherd. That's a butcher. He bought that flock and is driving them to the slaughterhouse. God's people deserve to be treated as fellow servants in the ambitions of his gospel work. Not like useful cogs in the machine of the ambition of self-glorifying men. In this we see an example of God-honoring facilitation of practical ministry by Paul. As he seeks to make Rome a partner, as a mission springboard, he also 
cherishes the people. And so Paul wishes to make them a mission springboard, but secondly, we see as part of Paul's practical facilitation of the work of the church, cooperative financial support. Cooperative financial support. Verse 25, at present, however, I am going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. I'm going to Spain. I want to plant some churches. I want to sleep in a tent and, and you know, get on with the exciting business of entrepreneurship as it stands in the local church. But first, I'm going to go a thousand miles in the opposite direction. What's this about? Taking aid to the saints in Jerusalem. That's simply this. As Paul traveled around the Roman Empire, we know for sure of three missionary journeys, a circuit, if you will, around the Mediterranean, planting churches, strengthening churches, visiting churches, writing letters to other churches while in these places, etc. There is perhaps a fourth where Paul did make it to Spain. Historians are, you know, divided Many believe that the end of the book of Acts where Paul is in Rome, in fact, only not there as a, as a welcomed guest, but as a prisoner. Many believe that he was executed there not long after Peter. And others believe that he did go on to Spain. We can't be sure. But we know for sure of three journeys around the greater Mediterranean. And that as he traveled, planting churches and strengthening churches, contributions for the church in Jerusalem were being collected. We'll read a few examples, but here's one of them from 1 Corinthians 16. He says, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you are also to do on the first day of every week, Each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. What's this about? Is this the institution of denominational conventions and salaried regional overseers? No, (laughs) no. Simply put, the church in Jerusalem was in a tough spot. They needed financial support from the churches in the region. Quick history lesson. After the dramatic events of Acts chapter 2, many of those 3,000 Jews who were saved that first day didn't go back home. They stayed there in the greater region in and around Jerusalem under the care of the apostles. Many of them left their homes to follow Jesus by following the apostles. The apostles made disciples of others the way Jesus made disciples of them. Just as they had abandoned everything, so too did many of these earliest Jewish converts. The church of Jesus Christ was a day old. There weren't seminaries. There weren't local churches to go home for training. Okay, we believe Jesus is the Messiah. We were cut to the heart. We were spiritually rejuvenated. Now what? And what did the apostles say? We don't have it in the record. The implication by everything that's described in the book of Acts and beyond is the apostles said, 
follow me as I walk in the footsteps of Jesus. And he would, they would teach and make disciples of these early converts the way that Jesus made disciples out of them. Furthermore, there was a famine in Judea. We read about in Acts chapter 11. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch where Paul and Barnabas were ministering. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So from this we derive both a historical occasion, there was a need, but also Paul's heart to facilitate the practical work of the church. He's the great planter. He spent several years in the desert with Jesus, but you know what's not beneath him? The practical work of the church. Delivering aid to those who were in need. Serving the poor and the needy among the body of Christ. Organizing relief efforts to be sent to them and even taking on the task of personally delivering what was collected. Paul was diligent to ensure the the churches be locally united in their families of faith individually, but also, if you will, globally united, cooperating together for the good of all and the spread of the gospel. So Paul was concerned with facilitating the practical work of the church regarding a mission springboard to the West, regarding cooperative financial support, and then thirdly, regarding care for the needy. So there's a B there. There's a B that goes, it goes, B, it goes like this, right? It goes, yep, cooperative financial support. See that one? And then there's the third one, which is care for the needy. Care for the needy. It's one thing to have plans and dreams for the future. Big dreams, big ambitions, exciting adventures. But these never choke off the priority of the present. At present time, however, I'm going to Jerusalem bringing aid to the saints. Verse 26, for Macedonia and Achaia have all been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. They were pleased to do it and they owe it to them. Verse 28, when therefore I have completed this and I have delivered to them what has been collected, if you will, my paraphrase, then I will chase my dreams. It's good to have dreams for the future, but these never choke off the priority of the present. It's one of the, uh, it's one of the joys of being marginally experienced, marginally, only barely, but just enough in pastoral ministry. 
that I'm, I'm entering into a season where young men in seminary who are just beginning their journey in pastoral ministry are beginning to ask me questions. And so I recently spoke to a friend who said, do you think that this is a good starting point? These are my desires. These are my ambitions. Do you think this is a helpful and proper place to begin? This is an opportunity. Recently married, expecting his first child. And by God's grace, I was able to to speak to him. And you know how I encouraged him? To prioritize the present moment. You're a husband, and you're going to be a dad. Okay? So no matter how you earn that bread, that's priority number one. I want to be a pastor, and I want to be a... Great! Baby! Wife! Okay? A, number one priority. Nothing wrong with these dreams. Hold on to them. Nothing wrong with that calling. The Lord put it in his heart. But those dreams never kick present priority out the door. Paul had a burning desire to take the adventure into Spain, but his priority is to the practical needs of the saints. John MacArthur says this is a test. This is addressing a a room full of seminary students. This is a test of a man's heart in the ministry. Can he set his dream aside for a menial priority? In Acts chapter 6, we read the widows don't have enough food, and so there's argument about who's getting a bigger portion. In Acts 11, we just read about the famine in Judea. In Acts 2, we read about that explosive nature of the church's inception. Beyond that, Christians were hated by hardline Jews in the first century, Paul being their ringleader, breathing out threats before his conversion. Christian Jews were being persecuted. They lost their homes. They lost their jobs. They were being thrown into prison. Fathers and providers were being put into prison for converting to Christianity. And how is their wife, how are their children to eat? Some were being stoned in the streets for evangelizing and saying that Jesus is the Messiah whom the Jews crucified. The financial need for the church in Jerusalem was great and the reasons were diverse. The needs of other believers and the unity of the church was a greater present priority than the evangelism of Spain. Do you see that, friends? There's dying people. There are no churches. People need Jesus. I'm desperate to go. But you know what else? That dream doesn't take priority over the present practical need of my brothers and sisters in the Lord in Jerusalem. Isn't that wild? Not only that, but the Gentile church giving money to a Jewish church in Jerusalem represents a practical outflow of this great spiritual paradox Paul had been harping about in Romans and in other letters. Galatians 3, there is neither Jew nor Greek. 
Romans 10, there is no difference between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all. Or how about chapter 14 and all the division that threatened their unity between Jewish and Gentile Christians in Rome over various liberties, matters of day and food. And so here we read all over this all over again. We rehash it mentally. We read it in his letters, this spiritual emphasis on the unity of the saints between two groups of people who otherwise wanted nothing to do with the other. Now, because they are brother and sister in Christ, those barriers are broken down, not just to the point of a spiritual acknowledgement, but to the point that money shows up in Jerusalem. I mean, just put yourselves in the scene for a moment. A money bag. Perhaps skins of wine. Preserved meats and fresh grains. Show up at the feet of the apostles of old camel knees himself, James, the brother of Jesus, the bishop of the church in Jerusalem. It's called camel knees because he... He prayed so much on his knees that they developed like swollen bone spurs. That's an aside that I won't chase. We don't have time. But can you imagine? At their greatest time of need, famine, persecution, hardship, these gifts show up. Who is this from, they ask. It's from your former enemies who live in the towns over there and over there. It's from those people you used to refer to as dogs. It's from those people you used to thank God in prayer every day that you weren't one of them. That is, of course, before all of us were saved by grace. Can you imagine the impact of that financial gift? At a time when their need was great, persecution high, desperation and hunger threatened every day of their lives. Here comes a gift from some people who you used to hate, who used to hate you, but are now counted as family in the bond of Christ. Isn't that wild? I want us to understand this, friends, because there is a great underlying principle here. The health of the local church is not at war with evangelism. The health of the local church is not at war with evangelism. There is a popular notion over the last 20 to 30 years that if a church insists on Ephesians 4.12 equipping the saints for the work of ministry, they must be insider focused and they don't care about lost people dying and going to hell. That if you do not redefine the purpose of the gathering on Sunday to make it a weekly evangelistic outreach, you don't care that people are dying and going to hell. That if you preach boring, expository, verse-by-verse sermons, reminding and training up the Christians who are among the flock of God that they have a purpose that they have a sin nature that needs to be regularly mortified, that is to say, put to death. That if you sing hymns that are rich in doctrine, 
that are memorable and that train up the young mind that if you do these things, you don't care that people are going to hell. If you cared that people were going to hell, you would change all of those things. You would offer TED Talks on Sunday, you would play rock and roll music from the platform, and you would turn the assembly of the saints for the equipping of them for the work of ministry into a weekly evangelistic outreach. This has been a popular swelling notion that has undermined the church's unity, purity, and uniqueness from the world around us. For the better part of the last 30 years, books have been sold by the millions that have reliably informed all of us that if we are to reach the world, we must look and sound more like them, not be more distinct from them. These are lies. It is actually, as Alistair Begg simply puts it, the church is never more effective than when she looks less like the culture around her. Last night we were reading um, in Deuteronomy with, uh, with my family, and, uh, uh, and we, we come to this word that comes up over and over again in the scriptures, especially in the Old Testament, you are holy, God is holy, these things are holy. And I just paused, I said, kids, what's that word mean? And it was like a chorus of you know, rehearsed answers, set apart, set apart, set apart. Distinct from, different than, reserved for another purpose This is the church of Jesus Christ. Uniquely different, pure, pursuing holiness, fleeing youthful lusts, mortifying sin. And in order to do that, friends, we require the regular instruction and bathing and watering and feeding on the scriptures. If we could do it without it, why would Jesus and the apostles prescribe it? We all need it, friends. For a number of years now, several of you uh, have been telling me how much uh, you have been blessed and strengthened and grown in your faith by the unimpressive, often lackluster, simple, verse-by-verse exposition of God's word from this pulpit. You've told me that. And I'm grateful to hear that. And you know what my response often is, either verbally or mentally? Me too. Me too, friends. We're all sitting here together under the instruction of the scriptures, being strengthened. Because you know what, friends? There is a Spain that needs the gospel. And there are dreams and ambitions that need to be pursued Friends, there are young people in this room who need to respond to a call to overseas missions. There are families in this room that perhaps need to respond to a call to move into an inner city environment and plant a church. There are 
10-year-olds and 7-year-olds and 15-year-olds and perhaps 50-year-olds who need to respond to a call to pastoral ministry. There are dreams and callings. And those things are not at war with the health and the unity and the equipping of the local church. They work together. One facilitates the other. This is important because the church has been harmed by this idea over the last 30 years. Many people have been disenfranchised, abused, neglected spiritually, and we need to correct this course. Friends, I want to offer you just three brief Three quick things, and, and we'll dismiss. And I mean it. They are. They're really fast. Um, number one, as we consider this emphasis from Paul, I want to ask that you concern yourself with usefulness to God's kingdom. Concern yourself with usefulness to God's kingdom. Okay, there isn't a, a, an adventure more exciting. There isn't a, um, a priority um, more worth chasing it doesn't mean you have to quit your job. It doesn't mean you abandon your family. Concern yourself with being a useful tool for the building of God's kingdom. I want to get to heaven, and I want to hear Jesus say, well done, good and faithful servant. We aren't going to hear those words. If we aren't concerned with being useful tools in the kingdom of God, it is a practical outflow of the genuineness of our faith. Secondly, the greatest antidote to a gloomy outlook is to serve. The greatest antidote to a gloomy outlook is to serve. Friends, there are, there are, there are lots of hurts in our church family. Uh, I, as a, because I'm a pastor and because I, like, I Google stuff all the time and I like search for scriptures, I get advertised to a lot. And one of the biggest advertisements that I get are the types of books that have, uh, that have pitch lines like, read this book, grow your church from 200 to 600. Get your church from 50 to 250. Read our book, apply our principles, and grow in numbers. Wait and see. Just sign up for our recurring charge. <laughs> We'll automatically debit your account. Oh, oh, thanks. And after seven years and standing in in this pulpit, I think, oh my gosh, there's a hundred people. I got enough problems to deal with. What do I need 600 for? But all kidding aside, in one little church family, there's family dysfunction, there's hurting marriages, there's children who have gone astray. We don't need to be a church of a thousand to need particular care and comfort. But what that also means is that there are, there are plenty of opportunities to have a gloomy outlook. You know, grieve, grieving losses, um, grieving 
desires unmet, grieving family dysfunction, grieving ailments physically, emotionally, mentally. I, I genuinely believe that the greatest antidote to a gloomy outlook is to serve. I mean, Paul is a great example. He was stoned and shipwrecked and beat and persecuted and lied about, slandered about, spat on, carried out forcefully out of town squares. And his spirits remained buoyed, I believe, because he was about the Lord's business. Thirdly, stop considering service as an elective. Stop considering service as an elective. Concern yourself with usefulness to God's kingdom. Desire and seek to be made into a sharp tool in the Father's hands. The greatest antidote to a gloomy outlook is to serve, and we need to stop considering service as an elective. R.C. Sproul puts it simply, service is not an optional aspect of the Christian life. All believers are called to be servants of God. There are volunteer positions inside our church that are unmet. There are practical work days. There are volunteer hours at our ministry partners that need to be filled. There are new and exciting opportunities to be part of what God is doing both locally and all around the world. And you know what they require? You. There's a handful of people who are serving every time there's an opportunity and they're the most joyful among us. But there's enough of us to go around who are still considering service as an elective. Friends, I implore you uh, along with, with myself, uh, to course correct. Not because I want something from you, but because I want something for you. Well, we'll pause there and we'll consider the last thing this section has to offer us next week. For now, let's close in prayer. Gracious Father, we thank you for this immensely practical portion of your scriptures. There are many weighty and lofty ideas in the letters of Paul, in the writings of James and Peter. There are complex wisdom literature books to examine. There are challenging prophetic books in your Old Testament scriptures. And all of these challenge the mind in unique and often philosophical ways But Lord, here we are living for a few weeks in an immensely practical section. I pray we would lean into that and embrace it. Learn all that we can. Stop over-spiritualizing. Get our hands dirty. Share the gospel. Commit our lives to unfettered service to your kingdom. There we will find our greatest joy. In Christ's name.